Neptune's Fancy by Vincent V. Cava. Upon my soul she was a lovely thing, pale-skinned, dark hair entwined with the green weeds of the sea. A pity she looked dead. We hauled her up in the tuna nets along with the dolphin heads and fins. Those warm-blooded bastards would trail the fishing fleet and try to steal our catch when they could. Cunning they were, too. But the dead ones are not as smart as they might be, since the razor edges of our nets would slice them up if they weren't quick enough. Aye, but she was whole, I saw as we laid her on the deck. Perhaps she'd fallen from some rich man's pleasure vessel in a drinking party out at sea. A whore more likely than not, and naked she was as on her born in day. But as I leaned over to touch those blue-tipped breasts, I was surprised to feel her move beneath me hands. Hi, Cap, I yelled. She's not altogether dead, I think. And the others came closer then to take a look. Those turquoise lips, they parted in a gasp, and she opened up her eyes as red as blood. Of a sudden, she sprang up and dashed across the deck. She crouched among some boxes there, and we could see she weren't no human girl at all. How lithe she was. How lean. Her lips drew back to show her teeth, small, white, and sharp like a barracuda's. Moisture beaded, shining on her face and arms. The muscles in her thighs were taut, but scratched deeply by our razored nets. Her breasts were large and pointed. Her fingers and toes were webbed. Rainbow-colored scales speckled her body in places, growing over her skin like the heavenly sores of some angelic leper. She was an apparition of a sailor's blackest, sweetest dreams. Antony, our ship's first mate, was the first to break the trance induced by them round red eyes. Cautiously, he gazed about as he forced himself to venture closer to the thing we'd just caught by chance. Antony was the most respected sailor on our boat, a Scot, tall, red, and broad at the shoulders, who had once served in the Queen's Navy. The monster girl was silent as she eyed him from her fortress nests of boxes. Then she made some sounds down in her throat. A seal or dolphin, maybe, like was how it rang inside my ears. The cap clutched his brother's arms and shook his sister's son and roused the rest of us to awakening. The shock of our first finding her then dripped away like spindrift against a boat's hull. Now he was all curious as hell, and Antony was standing closest to the girl. He took another step and held his hands out so as to let her get the scent of him by way of introduction. She didn't seem to take too much to that, because soon as he was near enough... She bit off a piece of his finger. Aye, a poor dumb animal, Antony hollered and waved his damaged finger in the air. It was bleeding horrible. He pulled a kerchief from his pocket and wrapped it tight round the tip of it. You needn't be afraid, gal, he called out. Antony was a godly man and wouldn't curse the devil himself. I did not intend to harm ya. The rest of us set up a general roar, but the mate said, Quiet down, you fools, or else you'll frighten the girl or fish or whatever that thing is and you wouldn't be wanting to scare a wild animal when it's cornered and hurting and female to boot. Aye, the cap agreed in a soft voice, parroting Antony, as was his wont, and I'm betting if she's scared enough to dash for it, she's primed and able to tear the insides out of anything that's gotten her way. That's when some sailor said he feared she'd slaughter us all. Kill her, cap, another cried, before she comes at us with that shark-toothed mouth of hers. Then Antony, who had the most reason to wish her harm, raised up his bandaged hand and bade us to relent. "'Ye gents are being hasty here,' said he in a peaceful voice. "'Mayhap she's not so vicious as we might suppose.' And he hid his bloody hand behind his back. "'Mayhap she be a gentle thing when she's at home beneath the sea.' 
I, the captain interrupted. A gleam came to his eye. She's not a monster coming to our midst, lads, but a treasure rare. And beautiful she is, too. A valuable oddity. A priceless curiosity. Boys, we could peddle her in any port for coins enough to last us years to come. He put his arms around the shoulders of those men closest to him and went on. Fellow sailors, brother merchants, relatives, and friends, if we handle this thing correctly here, we'll all come out as rich as kings. And then the eyes of all of us glistened with that golden light. The cap had hit upon the thought that each of us had been afraid to see. A treasure trove indeed she was, but what to do? How to proceed? Once caught, how do you keep such a ken of the sea? It was my thought then to give her tuna. Why else would she pursue the nets? A poor dumb thing I thought her to be. Human in form, mayhap she was, but without a soul she were no more than a beast. And beasts were such that man was commanded to rule in those first days of the creation of the world. She would not take the tuna from the deck where I'd tossed it, but she took it soon enough from the bleeding hand of Antony. And when she made her noises, then again a light struck up across the first mate's face. I hear her, brothers. She speaks the Queen's English. He sputtered and looked around at each of us, but seeing that we did not hear nor understand the words of the female gave him pause. But it's plain as milk he offered towards the cap, as clear as me mother's words when I sat upon her knee. Are ye daft, man? the cap inquired. You say there's words inside them chirps and whistles. Antony turned around, gazing wide-eyed at the creature as she went on with them noises, those blood-red eyes of her staring back at him just the same. She says it was me blood that done it, the bit of me flesh that she consumed. He turned to look at the cap. She says that's why I can hear her in me head. He pulled the rag from his torn finger and we could see the white tip of bone as he dripped his own blood onto a piece of tuna in his other hand. The girl thing sparkled her bloodshot eyes at him, but reached for his injured digit instead of the fish. Gently, slowly, she seemed to move as she raised the bloodied finger to her lips and nipped at his damaged flesh. "'Have you gone mad?' cried the cap. "'Feeding yourself to this sea beast!' The creature pulled Antony's finger, which by now had been gnawed halfway to the second knuckle from her mouth, and began to yammer once more. We stood in awe while he nodded his head as if he were understanding her yips and yaps." She'd be trying to get back to her home, gents, he said with certainty. And where would that be, laughed the captain, a thousand leagues below the ocean's surface. Nay, it'd be off the coast of an isle about a week's sail west of here, Antony replied. She told me so herself. She said she was making her way home when our nets snatched her up, this jewel of the ocean be royalty, captain. Her king rules the sea, and she's his favorite wife. You say in this thing, this fish woman, this web-toed female, be Neptune's fancy, asked the cap. But Antony kept right along as if he hadn't heard him. Our nets have done too much harm to our legs. And he gestured towards the gashes running up and down the merwoman's thighs. Now she's asking for our help. Her kingdom's built of gold and pearls and precious rubies, and she swore to me on the sanctity of her husband's throne that if we return her home, then we'd be paid in all the priceless gemstones this barge can haul. Aye, responded the cap, why be as rich as kings when we can be as wealthy as gods? There was a low rumble from the crew when he said that. Visions of golden underwater towers jutting up from the ocean's rocky floor danced and twirled through our heads like barmaids in a tavern when the grog is flowing heavy and the music be merry and the drunks be clapping along, encouraging them. Bah! From amidst the crowd arose a voice, horse and graveled it was, that broke us from our fantasies. 
It was old man Job, a half-blind, half-drunk scoundrel that had joined our crew about three years prior. Job wasn't much use for sailing, and he wasn't much use for whaling or fishing either, but the captain kept him around because he mopped the deck and cleaned the heads for the bottle of rum. A place to sleep at night and a little bit of food to go in his belly. When he wasn't out at sea, Job slept under the stars and begged for his meals. I'd have felt sorry for the old vagabond had it not been for his nasty demeanor. Cold and hostile, callous from years of living in the gutters with rats. Couple that with the fact he'd been caught a number of times stealing from the crew and you can see why I thought so little of the wretched bastard. Truth be told, none of us cared for him, but we tolerated old Job because he took on the duties nobody wanted. Every sailor on the ship then turned his head towards the elderly old man. He was sneering at the girl still crouching amidst the stack of crates, a trail of Antony's blood trickling from her turquoise lips. "'A fool's errand, you be suggesting, Antony,' said he. He snorted like a pig, then spit a thick wad of phlegm from his mouth. It landed at the first mate's feet, and a bit of it caught the toe of his boot. "'And a dangerous one at that. We haven't the rations for such a voyage, and what of Sal Rovers? Have you not considered such things?' We can restock off the coast of Portugal, Antony replied. From there, our destination is only three or four days out, dependent on the wind. And he once again began to bandage his bloody finger. As for pirates, my vote says the risk is worth the reward. Joe pulled a flask from his coat and took a swig, then fired an eye at the fish girl so sharp it could have pierced her scaly skin. I don't like that thing, Captain, he said, his voice grinding like a stone pestle being put to work. It's an abomination of God and we shouldn't be a-trusting it. And then the captain's voice erupted into fire. Shut your vile trap, old man, he shouted. Did you forget your place on my ship? Next time you think to instruct me on anything, I suggest you bite your tongue, lest I'll be cutting it out with the blade I keep in me boot. Antony, set a course for the port of Lisbon so we can restock. Friends and brothers, I aim to get rich. In a week's time, we'll never be needing to pluck another fish from the briny blue again. And with that, we raised the mainsail and changed course, setting off west towards our dreams of wealth and fortune. Morale was high amongst the crew three days into our voyage. The men sang shanties about mermaids and treasure when we was working and when we weren't. They talked of the extravagant things they aimed to purchase with their share of the loot. You could feel a buzz throughout the ship as every sailor was excited to see what treasure lay at the end of our journey. Every sailor except Job, that is. He hadn't spouted off since the cap had put him in his place, but I could see, even with me bad eye, that the old man's heart had yet to thaw when it came to the web-toed female. Antony, on the other hand, had grown as close as heat to a flame with the girl. She was moved to the first mate's private quarters, away from the curious eyes of the men on our vessel. The door was kept closed for privacy, but remained unlocked as per the captain's orders. Periodically, Cap would send a sailor down to check on him as to make sure the Scot and the fish girl weren't engaging in any perverse, ungodly acts on board his ship. But as I said before, Antony was a man of the book, and I have my doubts that a deviant thought ever crossed his mind. That isn't to say our first mate wasn't acting strange round the girl, though. He took to feeding pieces of himself to her nightly, and I had the dubious honor of assisting him on those first couple of evenings when the Cap had ordered me to pay them a visit. First, Antony would instruct me to fetch a tuna from the deck, a big one, as it turned out the girl had an appetite on par with that of a horse. When I returned, he would unsheathe the knife he wore on his belt and roll the sleeve of his shirt up around his elbow. Much to the displeasure of me eyes, Antony would then dig the blade's edge into his forearm and carve free small sliver of flesh. Inside the mouth of the tuna is where he'd place the lump of skin and muscle so that she could eat it with her supper. 
The girl devoured her fish raw like I hear the heathens of the Orient do, head, bone, and tail, all with a bit of Antony's flesh inside it. I'd watch her eat it while I helped him dress his wound. The smacking of her lips as she savored the uncooked tuna in her mouth was difficult on my ears. Every bite, accompanied by an abundance of nauseating noises, slurping and sucking sounds, would fill the first mate's cabin while she licked at the poor dead fish's eyes and grinded its bones between her pointed teeth. A gruesome sight it was indeed, but I came to reason that Anthony was letting the she-thing consume him for a purpose. It was explained to me through my discussions with the first mate, however limited they might have been, that over the course of each day Anthony lost the ability to understand the fish girl's tongue. Only when his flesh was inside the merwoman's stomach could he make heads or tails of her high-pitched whistles. And how clever of him it was, I did believe to continue their discussion and gain her trust, so as to ensure she did not go back against her word. I was glad that it was he and not I that had bonded with the creature. She appeared almost human at passing glance, but moved and acted like a wild animal. Gaze into her eyes and all you'd see was a feral beast staring back at you. This I found to be unsettling. I wondered, too, how the Scot felt safe sharing his cabin with her, but alas, men have done far stranger things for the promise of wealth. On the final night before Lisbon, the she-thing even managed to bite me hand as I was offering her a fish. An accident is what I believed it to be. Mayhap I should have paid more mind when delivering a hungry animal its meal. Nevertheless, her teeth had broken the skin and drawn blood enough that I needed to bandage myself. Happy to oblige, I was, when Antony dismissed me from his quarters for the evening following the encounter. By the time we docked in the port of Lisbon the next day, our rations had run bone dry. The cap sent only his most trusted men out for supplies and ordered the rest of us to stay on board. He feared that turning us loose in the city might have led to some unwanted queries from the locals about the special cargo we was hauling. When sailors reach dock, sailors tend to drink. Now a boozed-up sailor can still be of use to a captain in a lot of ways, but keeping a secret ain't one of them. All this was for the best, as I was not wanted to take any extra responsibilities that day anyhow. From the moment I had woken that morning, my joints had ached terribly and my head had felt misty and muddled. Antony had locked the girl away inside his room, while he was out leading the cap's chosen few through Lisbon. I, along with most of the crew, stayed on the ship and waited for he and the rest of the men to return with provisions so we could be on our way. Without the freedom to leave the boat, there wasn't much to do except drink myself to sleep and hope my joint pain passed, so that's exactly what I aimed to accomplish that afternoon. I was taking a catnap in me hammock when I felt a cold, clammy hand wrap around my forearm. The sensation shocked me something fierce, but a sudden feeling of dread kept me from opening my eyes right away. For you see, I was sure as birth and death it was the fish girl that had snagged me. With Antony out acquiring rations, my groggy mind reasoned she had come to me looking for a meal. After all, it had been I alone who was assisting the first mate during her grisly suppers. Those icy fingers were gripping me tight and the damp hand had me certain I was about to wake and find her standing over me, grinning down with that mouthful of daggers, and staring through me with those blood-red eyes. But when I finally mustered the courage to look, I saw that it was Job who had stirred me back to the waking world. I sat up in me hammock and readied myself to crack him with the back of me hand for rousing me from my nap. There weren't a lot of men on board that I would strike, but Job was the lowest in the pecking order, and a known thief at that, so I had no qualms with belting the old bastard, especially after catching him sneaking around the berth when he should have been topside scrubbing the ship's heads. To top it off, the pain in me joints was throbbing worse than ever, and I had attributed that to my sudden wakening. But the look of distress on his face gave me pause long enough to speak, and I lost the urge to strike him once he opened his yellow-toothed mouth. "'You needn't be upset about me rising you from your slumber,' he said. 
Even the sound of his whispering grinded awful like in me ears. I came to talk about the monster we pulled from the drink a few days back. That thing has got our first mate wrapped around her scaly finger and our captain fantasizing about a treasure that may or may not be real. There be not something altogether right about the journey we're embarking on. To me, it stinks to hell and back. Last eve, I hid behind the Scot's door and listened to the things he was saying to the creature. Well, he weren't talking to no jewels or kingdoms, I can tell you that. I can't say for sure because I couldn't understand the monster's tongue, but his words, they sounded treacherous. She put a spell on him, I be thinking, one that somehow gives her the key to his mind. Mayhap her power lies in the fact that she be eating little bits of him nightly. I watched you help him feed her, and that's the only reason me head can fathom why he'd collude with such a beast in the first place. Witchcraft it is. Now I be thinking he and she might be leading us to our deaths. We must be wary, you and I. For to blindly trust a soulless creature such as she is as mad as taking the devil for his word. I yanked my arm free from his grasp and told him he was lucky I wasn't the type to rat him out to Antony about his eavesdropping. He tried to plead with me, but my bleary mind had been made up and I was in no mood to listen to the ramblings of a dirty old thief. To hell with ya, he shouted at me. You're just like the rest of them, just like the captain. So blinded by your greed you can't see the danger right before your eyes. Well, if you don't believe me, then I'll prove it to you. Job then stormed from the berth with the fury of a tempest while I strained to forget the old man's warnings long enough to fall back asleep. We was putting a lot of trust in Antony to lead us to the promised land. True it was, the first mate had never given any of us reason to doubt him, but I wondered then as I lay in my hammock if this was cause enough to follow his lead without question. We raised anchor and set off from the dock the next morning. Once the shore had disappeared behind the horizon, the cap called every able-bodied sailor to the deck for a meeting. When I arrived, I was surprised to see the fish girl standing beside Antony in the cap. It was the first time she had been topside since we caught her. She was dressed in a garment so as to cover up her lady parts, more animal than woman she might have been, but the cap had insisted that keeping her covered was the Christian thing to do, so he made sure to have her garbed in front of the crew. It was the first mate's sleeping shirt she was wearing, and it hung from her thin frame, shallowing up her figure, like a young boy sporting his father's coat. Friends and brothers, the cap sang out, our stern is to the coast so there'll be no turning back now. The next time we drop anchor, we'll be doing it in the bay of this fair sea queen's kingdom. He waved his hand towards the girl, but she paid him no mind. She was still acting skittish and feral, just the same as she'd been since the first I laid eyes on her. Our first mate, Antony, continued the cap, has been communicating with the female. It is he and only he who she has trusted with the coordinates to our kingdom, so follow his orders, sailors, and we'll all be wealthy men by the week's end. Antony took a step forward to address the crew. He may not have been the captain, but he had the ship's reverence just the same, maybe more. Ahoy, fellow sailors! When we set off on this vessel four days ago, we did so as fishermen and whalers, but when this voyage is over, we'll be returning home as men with influence, men of means. Here, here, cheered the crew. In a few days we'll be reaching our destination, he explained. The entrance to this girl's kingdom lies within a place people call the Golden Grotto. And when he said that, I saw an eager smile stretch across the captain's face. It's a place plucked straight from the fables we read as children, a cavern where the water's liquid gold and the walls are encrusted with diamonds. When we find the Golden Grotto, we'll be so close to the treasure we'll be able to reach out and touch it. He pulled a piece of paper from his jacket. I've been taking the liberty of drawing us a map based on me conversation with the girl. Now if you be needing me, don't hesitate to call down to McHorter's. I'll be in there with the last discussing the customs and diplomacy of her people. 
Such things will come in handy upon our first encounter with the royal party. Antony and the she-thing then departed from the group. Most of us went back to cracking jollies and laughing about our good fortune after that, but not Job. I spotted him hovering in the back of the crowd all by his lonesome. He just kept right on staring at the Scot and the girl until they disappeared below the ship's deck. Only now do I think I know what he was gaping at. He had spotted something wrong regarding those two, something I believe that I had spotted as well, but had been too afraid to admit. And now that these events are behind me, I can permit myself to recognize the signs that I had so willfully ignored. It wasn't Antony that had broken free from the group first once the meeting had adjourned. It was the girl. He had followed her all the way below deck and not the other way around, like a child tailing his mother on an afternoon stroll through the marketplace. Job saw it then, and I see it now. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Illness would befall me not long after the meeting. By that very evening, I had come down with a sudden fever that set my skin ablaze, sent throbs of pain coursing through my muscles, and left me confined to me hammock. And so I slept, soaked in sweat and shivering from the chill running through my veins as the crew carried on their duties topside without me. It was during my malaise that I began to experience horrific nightmares, visions that buried themselves so deep inside my head they torture me to this day. I dreamt of a city beneath the ocean, looming up from the seabed like an unholy mecca of Lucifer. So real these visions seemed throughout the duration of my delirium that I could not tell the difference between reality on board the ship and the fabrications of my ailing mind. There were castles built of black jagged coral so razor sharp that the barbs and spines jutting from their immense bastions would rip a man's skin open upon contact. Spires standing hundreds of feet high, erected from the bones of sea creatures more massive than any whale were scattered about the place. Each underwater structure was enormous and intricately decorated, adorned with thousands of seashells or draped in colossal curtains of kelp. I had no body during these bizarre fever dreams. Instead, I moved about the sunken city like an ethereal specter. In the center of the district was a church with pointed steeples. Its walls were sculpted from one large piece of smooth black rock extending upwards from the earth. Its roof, a dark sea-green mass of repulsive projections, wriggled as if it consisted of millions of monstrous worms. At first I thought it was made of seaweed and the moving parts were simply a product of the ocean's influence, but as I ventured closer to the wicked house of worship, I found this not to be the case. Nay, I fear the truth is far more unsettling. For, to my dismay, I discovered that the thing draped over top the church was in fact alive and conscious. It was like no creature I'd seen before, at sea or on land. It had no head or tail, and I could not for the life of me tell you where the beast ended or began. But it writhed about and moaned loud and deep as though it were suffering horrible. The moving bits were tentacles of some kind, the tips of which were flat and white, each as long as a full-grown man. An enormous green slug covered with feelers is how I'd describe the unfortunate thing. Foolish it may sound, but I couldn't help but feel for the monstrosity. 
To my eyes, it seemed as though the slug was a prisoner of that church. The unhallowed cathedral's steeples rose up through the beast's flesh, skewering it alive so that it could not swim away. Closer to the terrible place I journeyed, unable to stop myself, I realized then that I was not in control of my actions. A chanting arose from the black church, drowning out even the cries of the monstrous captive. The voices were not human. They sounded of singing dolphins, but unlike the girl, there was some semblance of language in their words, albeit ones I could not understand. Through the doors I traveled, ever nearer to the chants, and there I witnessed horrors that could warp a sane man's mind. The underside of the slug thing above the church was now visible. The creature had no eyes or ears, at least none that I could recognize, but its enormous oval maw, large enough to swallow a merchant's ship whole, spanned half its body. Every one of its teeth was as big as a baby humpback and as sharp as the devil's tongue. Columns arranged in a circle ascended up, piercing the creature's pink sponge belly so as to pin it in place. The interior walls were carved in runes, the likes of which I'm certain no man has seen since before the time of Christ. There were no pews inside the structure, and aside from the pulpit and the columns, the chamber was completely bare. But I was not alone inside the church. There were hooded figures in black robes as well. They floated between the pillars in the center of the room, and I knew then that they were the origin of the strange chants I'd been following. The shrouded beings were busy performing their depraved religious ritual and did not acknowledge my presence, so I watched in silence as they worshipped and sang their ominous incantations. In response, the immense slug above cried and moaned throughout the strange ceremony, but never did the dark monks react to its bellowing. When the chanting came to an end, all but one of the worshippers removed their robes and dropped them to the floor. They were males the same race as the fish girl and bore the same sharp teeth and webbed fingers as she. Colorful scales even speckled their bodies in a similar fashion. They formed a circle around the one figure still cloaked and lowered their heads in what I assumed to be a prayer. This monk was bigger than the lot of them, at least twice as large. I had not noticed till the others removed their garments, but now the size difference was palpable. It was their leader, the archbishop of their ungodly congregation. It turned to face me and I realized that I wasn't as invisible to these things as I had thought. From the sleeves of the high priest's robe emerged a pair of gigantic webbed hands, though they were unlike those of the people surrounding it. More monstrous in appearance were these, with grayish green skin and talons in place of nails. On its wrist it wore a golden bracelet of a strange unearthly design. Mesmerizing I found it to be both stunning and frightening at the same time, and unique to any piece of jewelry I have ever seen in my life. I feared with all my soul to look upon the face of the horrible being, but as I said before, my actions were not mine to control. The thing then raised its claws and removed its cowl, revealing its awful features to me. There would be no mistake in the priest for human as one might the girl or the other worshippers of that sinful underwater temple. Nay, this creature was no more man than the beast imprisoned on the church's roof. Its head was a swollen, misshapen mass of blue-gray scales, and I'm not ashamed to say that I still shudder when I think of it. A dark green fin ran down the middle of its skull, disappearing into its robe. I found myself somehow grateful that it was still wrapped in its ceremonial garments, because the sight of its naked, bloated body may have been enough to break me psyche. Nevertheless, so hideous was the priest's face, froggish and fish-like in appearance, that I'm sure even the most courageous men would scream aloud if they were to lay their eyes on it. A series of gills flapped on the sides of the creature's neck, and tusks extended from beneath its flabby gray lips. Its glassy eyes, yellow and unblinking, sat too far apart on its face, protruding outwards like a pair of rotten cabbages as they studied me. 
Without doubt, the unhallowed congregation was the most appalling vision I've ever seen. I attempted to scream, but alas, I could not, though the slug expressed enough displeasure for the two of us. It started to thrash above our heads and cry to deafening pitch. The other worshippers then started up their dolphin chants again, but this only seemed to trouble the sea monster more. It shook the foundation of the building, yet even that did little to cause the priest to break its awful stare from me. My mind was swirling with the horrid sights and sounds occurring inside the submerged church, but just as I started to believe that they would drive me mad, my vision began to darken, and the blare of the creature's screams faded away to nothingness. When my sight had returned, I was again lying in my hammock on the ship. I had my body back, and no longer did my skin burn to the touch. For the first time since Lisbon, the fog that had settled inside my head had started to disperse. My fever had recessed, and with it the visions of that wicked temple in the city beneath the sea. Though the images I bore witness to managed to stay with me, as I could still recall those terrible dreams whenever I closed my eyes. I would come to learn that I had been laid up for three days, and in that time things had changed aboard the ship. The merriment that had been buzzing through the crew just days prior had vanished, only to be replaced by nervous whispers and a sense of trepidation. Out at open sea, surrounded by nothing but the deep blue depths, sailors tend to gossip just as females do, and, once my strength had returned to me, a few of the fishermen made it their duty to catch me up on what I'd missed while I was wrought with fever. The recent trouble seemed to be stemming from an altercation that occurred the night the illness took me. As I slept, so sick that I was well-nigh dead to the world, an incident occurred that had rattled many of the men on the boat, and not surprisingly, it was regarding Job and the girl. The story as it was told to me is that Antony had been topside that evening, navigating the ship through a patch of stormy weather so as to ensure the winds did not blow us off course. When the sea had calmed, he returned to his cabin to find the old man dagger in hand, harassing the fish girl and declaring that he aimed to kill her. The old man was bleeding awful from the side of his neck. The merwoman had taken a bite out of him after he'd made an earlier pass at her with his blade. Gushing, his wound was too. A crimson pool had collected at his feet, but despite the loss of blood, Job had a fire burning so bright inside him that night, he had moved beyond all reason. Antony ordered him to halt, but the old man refused to yield to his commands. He wanted only to bury his dagger in the merwoman's heart, and there was no threat the Scot could make that would deter him from his mission. Aye, all else had become trivial to the old man. Job backed the girl into a corner, raised the knife over his head, and readied himself to come down on her with the point of his blade. But the Scot was quicker and stronger than he. Before the grey-haired beggar could drive his dagger into her chest, Antony dashed across the room and sunk a knife of his own between the blades of his shoulders. The men who had witnessed this said that Job then folded like a book, crumpling to the floor an instant later. As it turned out, the first mate's knife had delivered a fatal blow, but the old man did not pass quietly into the afterlife. He groaned and howled for minutes. Some of the crew tried to tend to him, but the beggar's injuries were too severe. Antony's knife was buried down to the hilt. In time, Job's breathing shallowed, and his eyes began to dim. But just before his soul would leave his body and travel to the heavens, or down to hell, where I believe it may have been destined, he raised a finger towards the first mate and uttered his final words. She's his master now. The cap did not reprimand Antony for killing Job. After all, he was only a beggar, and as I said before, the old man did not have many friends aboard the ship. Nevertheless, he was given a proper eulogy the next morning, and his body was buried at sea. The Scot, however, was absent from the ceremony, and it was then that the rumors began. Those who had witnessed what happened did not believe that lethal force had been necessary. Antony was one of the strongest sailors on our ship, and could have easily subdued the frail old man without the use of his knife. 
The girl we was harboring was an unnatural, frightful thing, strangely beautiful though she was. And with the death of Job, much of the crew was beginning to grow nervous about her presence on the vessel. Mayhap the old man's final words was getting to him. This is something I cannot say for sure. But a bit of a mild panic had broken out amongst the men, and it seemed to have spread like a plague while I was ill. A lot of them knew little about the feeding practices I'd been assisting Antony with in secret before my fever struck. I'm sure their fears would have swelled considerably if privy to that information, so I thought it best to keep my mouth closed when they started prodding me about such things during our discussions. No need to fan the flames, I thought, especially when we were so close to our destination. Antony might have been able to quell concerns himself had he appeared on deck now and again following Job's death, but for much of the time I was sick, he'd been cooped up in his quarters, battling an apparent fever of his own. Word amongst the men was that the cap had checked on him, and upon seeing his condition, feared for the first mate's health. He ordered Antony to relinquish the girl so another sailor could mind her while he recovered, but the Scot had somehow talked him out of it. Ill he might have been, but Antony was still a persuasive and powerful speaker. He managed to convince the cap to send him a hand instead, so as to help him feed the girl, since I was too delirious from fever to offer my assistance. The man's name was Jacob. He was a young fisherman from a poor village who had learned everything he knew about sailing while working aboard the ship. He too had been questioned by the others about Antony and the girl, but refused to talk to him. However, once he heard that my fever had passed, he sought me out to converse about our shared experiences. Jacob approached me the afternoon I woke from my watery nightmares and requested that we speak in private. We found an isolated spot at the hull of the boat. It was only there where we knew others would not hear our discussion that he felt secure enough to open up to me. The young fisherman spoke in a hushed tone, and I knew from the cadence of his voice and the way his hands gripped me tight around my shoulders that he was very troubled. "'Antony has mandated that I do not speak of my chores outside of his cabin,' Jacob whispered to me. His silky blonde hair had fallen over his face, and for a moment he looked almost mad. He knows his practices are unconventional, and he fears it would upset the crew if they were to know how he goes about the girls' feedings. I nodded in agreement, for in the many years I've walked this earth... I've come to recognize that even a fool alone in distress is far from rational than a collection of great thinkers when dangers hanging over their heads. But you've been present for them too, he continued. You are helping feed the girl before the illness fell upon you, before I was chosen to take your place. I remained silent as it was not yet my turn to speak. Something was weighing heavy on the young man's heart, a secret he felt he needed to disclose. The only thing that kept me sane during the time I spent with the Scot was knowing you had not run screaming from his cabin after witnessing those horrors. Jacob paused for a moment and bit his bottom lip. His face was rife with terror. I bade him to carry on, so he took a deep breath and glanced over his shoulder. Once he saw no one was in earshot, he resumed his account. The things he did, the way he fed himself to her... But his voice trailed off again and his dark brown eyes fell to his boots. It was difficult for him to relive those moments... I placed my hand atop his shoulder to soothe the young man's worries. Aye, friend, I replied with a smile. It is a dreadful habit he's developed. I assume that Jacob was speaking of the very same practice I had witnessed Antony partake in with the mare woman. His disgust was something I found reasonable. Watching the Scot carve the flesh from his arm was a sickening sight to behold, but Jacob was acting as if he'd crossed paths with the devil himself. When he spoke, his voice quaked with fright and his lips quivered like the plucked strings of a lute. I thought mayhap his fears were overstated, but when the young man opened his mouth again, I began to reconsider that notion. Dreadful, he cried. If only one could describe such things with a word as modest as dreadful. Nay, 
There is no way to express the horrors I witnessed inside of that man's chamber. Tell me how you managed to keep your sanity. I saw you those first few days. When you weren't assisting him, you walked about the ship as if nothing were the matter. How did you keep your conscience clear, knowing full well what he was allowing the creature to do to him? I shrugged my shoulders, but before I could answer him, Jacob started up again. He said it was for the good of the ship, but I won't be part of it anymore. Now that you're well, I'll be informing Antony that I no longer wish to aid him while he feeds himself to that terrible thing. If it doesn't frighten you, then I beg you to take my place. God, how he allowed her to eat him alive. The way she sank her teeth into his chest and stomach. The awful hymns he would recite. They burned my ears. He sang them aloud with a smile on his face as she devoured him. As she sucked the blood from his veins. I tried my best to calm him. But Jacob had worked himself into a frenzy. His face bore the desperate look of an injured animal, and all my words appeared to fall on deaf ears. It seemed as if he was losing his mind before my very eyes. Of a sudden, the young fisherman spun around and ran off. He stormed below deck, and I knew he was heading for the first mate's quarters. I didn't try to follow him, though. The last few things he'd been yammering on about made me hesitate. From what I could gather, Jacob's time with Antony sounded far different than my own. Never did he let the girl bite directly into his flesh while I assisted him, and the part about her drink in his blood sent a chill through my body. I pondered, too, about the hymns the young man spoke of and found myself thinking back to the dark monks of my dreams, wondering if they and the first mate's songs were one and the same. Moments later, I would hear a scream rise up from the berth, and I knew at once that it came from Jacob. To be concluded. By the time I arrived below deck, a dozen men had gathered around the first mate's quarters. Jacob was shouting and holding his arm and I could see the sleeve of his shirt was stained a deep red. You blasted beast! He shouted. You godforsaken animal! Anthony was in the doorway. He'd put himself between the crew and the girl. Blood was smeared across her face, and it looked as though she was still chewing a piece of the young man in her mouth. I peered back at Jacob and realized then just how much muscle she had torn from his arm. Jacob's wound was spilling like a waterfall. I could see the bone of his forearm, a flap of his flesh, attached by only a single piece of skin, dangled loosely from the mangled limb. Ah! It burns like fire! Like a flame to my flesh! The men were trying to console him, but the young sailor had fallen into a panic. The captain had entered the berth by now, having been lured by all the commotion. He instructed some of the crew to take Jacob topside and help him dress his injury. It took four men to pull him away, kicking and screaming from the first mate's door. I stayed behind. Jacob was bucking like a wild horse, and though my health had improved, I was still weak from my fever's lingering effects. Once he was gone, Anthony stepped outside of his cabin and closed the door behind him to address the cap. He burst in like a madman, Captain, Anthony explained. No fair warning at all, not even a single knock. It, it startled the girl. This is the first time in days that I'd gotten a look at the Scot, and I, and I understood then why the cap had been so worried about his well-being. Anthony looked to still be suffering from what had been ailing him. His face as pallid as a phantom floating through the fog, and it seemed as if he'd lost considerable weight. His movements were sluggish. Even each of his steps demanded the will of the world. Even his curly hair that had been such a vibrant, fiery red just days before had dulled to 
into a drab orange. Anthony gazed out at the remaining men through a pair of glossy, tired eyes, set deep in the sunken sockets of his face. A strange thought then crossed my head. The look of a man waiting for death to take him. How much farther, Anthony? asked the captain. The crew was restless, and I can't be having any more of this nonsense on this ship. We'll be reaching the grotto before next eve, Captain, Scott muttered out. And when he said that, the cap's eyes gleamed, for the briefest of moments driven by the promise of riches he was, so much so that he'd begun to let the treasure consume his every waking thought. The cap scratched his beard, while he contemplated the first mate's answer. Good then, he finally responded. And how are you feeling? I strong enough to make the journey, but I need me rest. The captain turned to face the rest of us. Well, you heard him, he barked. Let him rest. Tomorrow we drop anchor, and there'll be no more disturbing him till then. Fever struck Jacob that night. Just after dark had begun to settle in, and by the time the sun had fully sunken below the edge of the sea, the young fisherman had been reduced to an unconscious, babbling, sweat-soaked mess of a man. The crew was in an uproar. Their fears had more than doubled once word of poor Jacob's condition had traveled through the ship. I pitied him, knowing full well how terrible my own illness had been, and prayed that he made a swift recovery. I believed that our fevers had been connected. After all, the only three men who had fallen ill on the ship had each felt the merwoman's teeth pierce their flesh. Mayhap, her bite was venomous. This is something I now know to be true, though. I would have no idea just how potent her poisonous mouth could be until a good deal later. The cap himself stood guard outside Anthony's door that night, so as to prevent a repeat of the Job incident from earlier. This worked well enough to suppress any budding untrust. The night passed along without a skirmish, and before I knew it, the sun had begun to reappear over the eastern horizon. The morning passed by easily enough. Though tensions throughout the ship were still high, I found myself sharing laughs with a few of the men who were waiting to hear word from the cap. It wasn't until midday that he made his way up topside to speak to us. His eyes were red and swollen from the lack of sleep and his arms hung loose and heavy, like pendulums from his shoulder. When he spoke, I could hear the fatigue in his voice, but his eagerness for adventure and hunger for wealth still apparent. Today is the day we make our fortune, men, he said to us. Today we become rich. And then, in a moment so timely that it must have been orchestrated by the fates themselves, the excited shouts of a crewmate called down from the crow's nest above our heads. I see it! I see it! Len Ho! By the time we drifted into the bay, the late afternoon sky was beginning to rust, and it looked as if the heavens were cast from copper. The island was so small a man could set out on foot at dawn, explore every nook and crevice of its terrain, and still return back to where he started before evening came about. The beach was littered with palms. Birds with bright feathers and hooked beaks grazed its sandy shores. Beyond that was a lush garden full of ferns, colorful flowers and exotic trees. Anthony appeared topside with a girl shortly after the beaches first came into sight, 
he navigated the ship to a cove tucked away in a rocky corner of the aisle. Here is where we were told we could expect to find the Golden Grotto. The mouth of the cave was too narrow for our ship, so we lowered three whalers into the water and rowed out. There were six of us to a boat. Mine brought up the rear, while the boat with Captain Anthony and the fish girl led our modest procession. Most of the crew stayed on board of the ship, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I envied them. For it, as my trust in the Scot had been waning since the prior day's incident with Jacob. The other men in my whaler must have felt the same way, for the faces were grim and cheerless. There was gloom hanging in the air, and I felt less like a treasure hunter and more like a doomed soul embarking on a one-way voyage down the river Styx. Our boats were rigged with harpoons. We were fishermen, not soldiers, and the cap was the only one amongst us three vessels carrying a pistol. At a glance, the grotto was by no means remarkable. After hearing Anthony talk of it, I had been expecting marble statues and jewel-encrusted archways, but the mouth of the cave was small and ordinary, and our heads nearly touched the ceiling as we paddled inside. We used torches to light our way through the darkness. I thought my nose had grown numb to the stench of fish, but the smell inside the cave was so harsh and overpowering that it caused my eyes to water. Black rock formations rose out of the water's surface like tentacles of a kraken, and our voices bounced hollow off the walls. Aye, the grotto was a peculiar place indeed, but peculiar for all the wrong reasons. The Scot had promised us a wondrous vault full of precious emeralds and rubies. But the deeper into the cave we traveled, the more I felt my dreams of riches drift away. The walls were made of stone, not diamonds. Yet even the slightest hint of gold was absent from its murky waters. Steady unease was growing throughout the group as we sneaked our way down the grotto's narrow canal. So deep we had journeyed into the treacherous cave that the mouth of the cave was no longer in sight. The flames from our torches were casting strange shadows on the walls. They danced and frolicked across the rocks like ghastly spirits. The feeling of dread was beginning to swell inside me like a rising black tide, and I feared I might never gaze upon the sky. Eventually, our party came upon a dead end. But this only gave my worries even more reason to flourish. Now the promise of treasure seemed further away than ever. I know that I was not alone in this thought, because after some time it was the Cap himself who turned to Anthony and began to question him. Where are the rubies, Anthony? He demanded. Where are the pearls and the emeralds you spoke of? His words were full of rage, but the Scot said nothing. His only response to the Captain's interrogation was to stare so cold and distant that I briefly thought he might have been dead. Answer me! shouted the Cap. And when he said this, he lowered the barrel of his pistol between the first mate's eyes. Where's the gold? Where's the diamonds? The girl leaned over the edge of the boat and dipped her webbed fingers into the water. Aloof and childlike was her demeanor, as if completely oblivious to the ruckus the cap was raising. The torchlight reflected red off her scaly skin and I remember thinking that she looked like hell incarnate. The captain cocked his pistol so as to impress his point upon the Scot, but Anthony sat in silence, never flinching, only breathing. Captain, one of the men shouted out, there be something in the water. 
The lot of us then spun around and saw six heads breach the water's surface. Now I know you may think me mad, but I'd recognize the creatures. The creatures from my nightmares. I was now face to face with the very same wretched monks that had tormented me during my fevered dreams. A chill ran through my body once this realization came to pass. That fishy smell had somehow grown more potent, so much so that it left its foul flavor in my throat every time I drew a breath. Time seemed to stop as we stared, in awe, at the horrid things treading water before us. A scream rose up from behind me, sharp and jawing. It pierced the moment like the tip of a dagger, and when I turned in its direction, I saw that it was coming from the cap. The fish girl had ambushed him from behind while his attention had been diverted. Her arms were wrapped tight around his shoulders, and those shark teeth of hers had buried themselves into the side of his neck. He fired a desperate shot, but alas, the cap was too far gone. The bullet missed completely, and when he tried to cock his pistol again, his fingers betrayed him, and he dropped his weapon into the dark waters. The blood running down his throat looked black against the glow of the torchlight. Again and again she tore away at his flesh, opening his wound larger with each bite. Anthony did nothing to stop her. The other men in the boat pulled at her arms and legs, but the girl's grip was strong and they couldn't pry her loose. I glanced back towards the mermen just in time to see the last of them dive out of sight. Seconds later, our boats were rocking back and forth and I knew they intended to tip us over. Out of instinct, I snatched the harpoon and jabbed it into the water, though I couldn't see a thing beneath the surface, and my spear came up empty each time. A mate in the second boat did the same, but the merman lunged up and grabbed hold of the harpoon's shaft, then pulled the poor bastard overboard. He breached just long enough to let out a horrible cry before the creature pulled him back under. The girl continued to feast on the captain, but his screaming had sunk into a pitiful groan. No longer did he have the strength to struggle, his throat was red and gnarled. It looked like raw meat. My boat was the last to capsize, and by the time it hit the water, the wicked things were already swarming the sunken sailors, just as piranhas do. They glided through the water with incredible speed and grace, attacking from every angle and tearing into the men with ease. The cave was pitch dark now. The torches had been extinguished, but I could feel the creatures moving all about me. My crewmen's garbled cries told me just how deadly those waters were, but even the sounds of the slaughter didn't disturb me as much as Anthony's voice when I heard it, chanting out amidst the madness. Flat and colorless it sounded, as if the first mate was under the influence of a spell. He recited those blasphemous prayers, the very same I had heard in my nightmares, as the creatures massacred our friends and brothers all around us. I shut my eyes and began to swim. The fish people were faster than I. This I knew, but I reasoned that fleeing was my only chance to survive. I couldn't see a thing in the darkness, so I used the screams of my fellow sailors to guide me. I swam from the carnage as fast as my arms and legs would allow me. So sure was I that I'd soon be meeting my death that I had already begun to make a peace with the thought of their teeth shredding my flesh. I could hear the blood-soaked cries of my crewmates even after I emerged from the cave. I gazed over the cove as my eyes adjusted to the twilight, and I saw the ship still anchored in the bay. The sight was indeed a relief, but I knew I was far from safe. As long as I was in those waters, I was nothing more than prey. I felt myself grow weary. My heart was pounding inside my chest like the stampeding hooves of a thousand horses. My muscles were aching terribly, and my vision was growing blacker by the minute. Once or twice as I made my escape, I thought I caught the fishy stench of the cave. But every time I peered over my shoulder expecting to see those things chasing me down, I found that I was still alone. My mind was fading fast and I feared if the fish people didn't kill me then, 
the cove's warm, tropical waters would. But just before darkness grabbed me, I felt myself plucked from the seas as if by an angel and pulled aboard a boat. When I opened my eyes, I saw the worried faces of my crewmates staring down at me. One of them attempted to ask me questions, but I'm afraid to say... My memory completely leaves me at that. Next thing I recall, I was back in my hammock aboard the ship. I had awoken from yet another deep sleep. So long I napped that we were already more than halfway home. Many days had passed since that bloody afternoon. I was told by the crew that they had lowered a rescue boat into the water when they heard the crack of a captain's pistol. But the screams pouring from the grotto had deterred them from entering the cove, and so they waited until they spotted me making my escape. The men said that my eyes were wild when they pulled me from the drink, and that I yelled and blathered like a madman, but my warnings had frightened them enough to turn back and leave the rest for dead. I passed out by the time they brought me aboard the ship. Not long after, they raised the mainsail and decided to make a hasty departure. I spoke to Jacob while I recovered below the deck. His fever had left him, and he was eager to talk about the nightmares he suffered through. When I told him of the grotto, he said the scene I described unfolded just the way he experienced in his dreams. He saw that awful city as well, and witnessed those monks and that wicked high priest performing the same depraved rituals that I observed. That was all many years ago. I left the fishing business and moved as far inland as I could. Jacob, too, retired early. He traveled back home to live and care for his elderly mother. But even though we went our separate ways, the two of us made sure to keep in correspondence. You see, we shared a mutual bond. Those awful dreams still haunted us, and they were often the main topic of conversation in our letters. We believed it was the fish girl's bite that induced it and then mayhaps her venom still flowed inside our veins. I looked forward to hearing from him because he was the one person I felt I could speak freely to about my nightmares. Through our discussions, we tried to decipher hidden meanings in our dreams. We researched the ancient runes that were carved inside the dark church and tried our best to translate the monk's language, though we made little progress in our endeavor. In his letters, Jacob often spoke of a book that he was searching for, an ancient tome written by a mad Arab that he believed would hold the answers to our questions. To my knowledge, he never tracked it down. But I wonder if the book could have helped him once things took a turn for the worse. I started to worry for my friend. A little over a year ago, his words began to sound paranoid, and I noticed a rapid decline in his penmanship. He told me his dreams were now unbearable, they had been weighing heavy on his thoughts. This concerned me most of all. Then a few months later, I stopped receiving letters from him altogether. I wrote him many times, inquiring about his well-being, but never received a response. And so, after some time, I've decided to pay him a visit. His village was out on the coast. It was the first time in years that I had seen the ocean, and I was surprised to find myself undisturbed by the sight of it. Nay, in fact, I found comfort in its rolling blue waves. His mother answered the door when I arrived at Jacob's home. I introduced myself as an old friend, 
but a look of grief struck her face when I uttered his name. And right away I knew my fears had been confirmed. She said that a terrible tragedy had occurred. It seemed as though Jacob's final letters had only revealed a small sliver of his tormented soul. His mother told me just how much he'd changed over the past year. He'd become detached, standoffish. She said he was full of anger and that he often woke up screaming in the night. The man I knew was a devout Christian, but she said he had renounced the church. And when she asked him why, he would only talk of crazy things, as she would say, like ancient beings and sleeping gods. His behavior, too, had begun to scare her, but she was old and feeble, and feared if she spoke out then, he might strike her. And then, early one morning, while his mother still slept, he stripped himself bare, walked naked through the village, and threw himself from a pier. He fell like a stone into the sea. A few fishermen setting out for the day witnessed the whole thing unfold. They said he was ranting and speaking in tongues, and it seemed as though he was talking to the ocean itself. His body was recovered, and, and a memorial service was held in his honor. At the time, I felt pity for him. I thought mayhaps his dreams had worn away at his mind, like waves do against the face of a cliff. But this, I now know, is not entirely true. Mayhap it was my proximity to the coast. But soon I too began to have a new vivid dream that they haven't stopped since I ventured out to Jacob's village. Each nightmare seems more real and frightening than the ones that came before. In them I see more underwater cities filled with monstrous creatures like the High Priest from my fever dream, but now their history is told to me as I sleep. These deep ones have lived for millennia below the ocean's surface. It is they who rule the fish girl and have carnivorous brethren. They view these mer-people as abominations and an early, failed attempt to breed with the human race. But they tolerate their existence and let them worship in their sunken temples. They are used in religious rituals, sometimes given up as a sacrifice to, to Father Dagon or Mother Hydra. Other times they are utilized by the Deep Ones to manipulate man. I am sure now that there never was a golden grotto, nor was the girl really a queen of the sea. But the venom of her bite was powerful and I think I can still feel it taking effect even today. The thought of land now repulses me. For a week I've been in this village on the coast, and have not been able to peel myself away. I want to go home, but the ocean won't allow it. It beckons me, I can hear its voice calling in the wind, gusting over the water, begging me to take the plunge just as Jacob did. He wants a sacrifice. And the more I dream, the harder it is for me to fight these urges. There is a realm of wonders that is unknown to man, dark, cyclopean cities beneath the sea, magnificent, inconceivable spectacles. The Deep Ones build churches there and worship all-powerful gods, sleeping gods that will return, and when they do, it will mean the end of the world. I used to think man ruled the sea that the creatures dwelling in the depths were ours to hunt and kill, but the venom in me blood has, has pulled the veil from my eyes and revealed the harrowing truth 
We are nothing in this world. Its true kings will show themselves soon enough. I can hear the prayers of those monks now, even when I'm awake. They haunt me and remind me of this fact. He sleeps, they tell me. He sleeps. But I know that he will not sleep forever, for the day will eventually come when he rises from his slumber. Thank you to Vincent V. Cava for writing this story exclusively for my channel. You can see more work from Vincent linked in the description below. You won't want to miss what's next, and I'll see you next time. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.